There was a crooked man, and he walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat, which caught a crooked mouse. And they all lived together in a little crooked house. The origin of this poem is a little unclear. There's different stories. But one of the stories says that it relates to a man who was a Scottish general, Alexander Leslie, who in the mid-17th century, prior to the Act of Union between Scotland and England, won from Charles I a truce and the right for Scotland to have its own religious and its own political freedom. The crooked style is the border. And the crooked house is the island of Great Britain. People living in one land, but living separate lives. In the time of Jeroboam, the people of the Holy Land lived separate lives. He had won freedom for his northern kingdom of Israel, freedom from Judah, ruled by Rehoboam. And the people were left coexisting as if in a crooked house, a crooked house with a border. However, although they had separate political rulings, different leadership, they had the same faith. And the temple was in Jerusalem, in the south. It was the home of worship. It was thought of as the home of God, the very house that he would dwell within. It was certainly where the commandments were kept. And so there would be a pilgrimage. And as we thought of the festivals last week, we heard of how they would go in the spring and in the autumn. And this worried Jeroboam greatly. What if the people on pilgrimage become indoctrinated? What if they want a union? What if they think Rehoboam should rule the whole land as he used to? What if on their return they rise up with Judah to dispose him as the king? And so we see him build fortifications. He strengthens the cities of Shechem and Peniel. He builds up their strength, ready for any invasion, ready to repel all those who would be against him. But he need not have done that. He had great fears, but the fears were unfounded. God had already talked to the southern troops there was going to be no war. 
Jeroboam had been called by God and anointed to take his place in the north, and God would not stop that from happening. And so God had sent the troops back south. There was no plot to overthrow. And he should have trusted the Lord. But instead he decides to trust in his own plans. In his own strength. In his own way of doing things. He replaces trust in God with fear of the people. And chooses to go his own way. There are times we might make that mistake. We are afraid of the world. So we choose to fit in with society to not live out our faith. There's times when we bow to peer pressure of those round about us, those that we know. There's times, perhaps, that we accept advice that we know flies in the face of what God would have us do. And I wonder how often our own politicians and government choose a policy based on what they think will make them popular and so keep them in power rather than choosing to do what is right and true and just. The right thing for Jeroboam would have been to walk with God by acting justly and loving mercy and being humble before the Lord. To be humble in his kingship. To trust his people. To allow them to go south to Jerusalem. To go to worship God. And to return to live as people of faith within his kingdom. But he chooses not to do that. He is scared. And so he decides if the problem is in where they go to worship God, they'll go to worship God somewhere else. He will build new places of worship. Now, there were other altars. Jerusalem was not the only place where God could be worshipped. The tribes that had settled east of the Jordan had built an altar similar to the one in Jerusalem. They'd built it because they were separated by the river. And they wanted to be one with their brothers in the west. And so they built a very similar altar so that they could conduct similar worship. But that was an altar to God, and Jeroboam's was not. 
the sighting of the altar in the northern part in the northern part of Dan is based on geography purely and simply to stop people travelling to keep them where they were and also the little shrines and things that were also built if you stop movement you stop the spread of ideas it's the ideas that we saw in communist Soviet Union, isn't it? You couldn't travel about unless you had the permit. It's the rules in places like North Korea today. You can't move if you're a citizen there. Because if you were to travel, you might get fresh ideas. So he would limit their movement and deny them any reason to travel. Geography was also important with Bethel, but so too is its history. It's the site where Jacob becomes renamed as Israel. It is the place where he laid his head down and slept, having dreams of a ladder and angels ascending and descending, a sense of the presence of God. It becomes named Bethel, the house of God. And so this religious significance and the fact that it's a dozen miles shy of Jerusalem gives it the right place to be in the south. It's somewhere that pilgrims would have stopped off at anyway on their journey. But if you put an altar there, maybe they'll just take their sacrifice that far rather than all the way. How far are you willing to go to worship God in the right place? How far do you travel to do what's right? What sacrifice on the journey of your time do you give to God? Do you give to God some time each day, perhaps? Or do you not? But there's more, more to these altars than simply being in a new location that is not Jerusalem. It's more than restricting travel, it's changing what is worshipped. Jeroboam has followed unwise advice and casts two golden calves. And his words are, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Does that sound a little familiar? Associated with a golden calf? It's the words, it's an echo of Aaron. When he cast a calf, at the foot of Mount Sinai on the day that the law was given. Bowing to peer pressure, he gave in to God's people that weren't really following God. And the gold was taken and the calf made. It's almost as if Jeroboam was remembering 
Exodus chapter 32, but getting in a muddle as to what is right and what is wrong. He reenacts it, making this time two statues, one for each of the altars. In our postmodern culture, it's all too easy for people to say, well, I'll take a little bit from my faith and I'll take a little bit from somewhere else and we'll add them together and we'll mix it up. We'll take something of what's said in the media We'll take something that I saw in a book one time and just bring it all together. And that allows me to worship as I see fit. But that's not how we're called to live. We're called to think on God's word. We're called to worship the Lord. We're called to praise the one that loves us. Not an inanimate object. If we don't read the word and study what it says, then there's a danger we'll get the wrong message. If we don't worship and sing our praise to him, what will we worship? What will we sing? If we don't bring our prayers and focus them on the Lord, if we don't seek Jesus to intercede, Who are we calling to intercede? We are called to live and worship God's way. Bulls and calves had been idols in Egypt. And their imagery and their worship had been present in Canaan too. And it had not been driven out when the Israelites arrived. The bull has been a god of agriculture and fertility. And so the calf was a normally recognised item. Something that was swallowed subconsciously by God's people. Even Solomon's design of the basin which held the water in the Jerusalem temple had a dozen bulls holding it up. I wonder where our false imagery or corrupt stories come from today. Where do we pick up the things that we then put into our life? that leads us into false worship. Buddhist statues are sold as interior decorating or to be placed in your garden. Some of the pages on Facebook which claim to be patriotic are actually racist and are breeding hatred of others. That's not of God's way. And while we are called to be stewards with dominion of the earth, care must be taken that we don't turn that into domination but also that we don't start worshipping 
the creation rather than the creator. When we see the beauty, we praise God. We don't praise the beauty itself. Jeroboam distracted the people from Jerusalem. But he also distracted them from God. How could the crooked man with a crooked altar be halted? He had even instituted a festival on a date of his choosing. And that indicates a a level of egotism. So that he can go to the convenient altar at the convenient time. So that he can worship as he sees fit. As Jeroboam stands there, the Lord brought forth a prophet. And the prophet has to come from Judah. He has to come from the south. He has to travel to be there. It's almost as if he's making the opposite pilgrimage. He has to come and proclaim the Lord's word to those that are in the wrong place. Even the old prophets that were found in Israel can no longer bring the word. They've fallen from the way. And the word that's brought is not about the king directly. And it's not about the people. But it's about the place where they are gathering. And it's about what they're doing. It's about the sin that has become present. But the prophet speaks altar. or altar. He's addressing an inanimate object. A thing that serves a purpose... but won't actually normally do anything at all. And the king's not having it, is he? There's a call for the guards to arrest, for the prophet to be seized, For him to be taken away for the proclamation of the word to end. And as he reaches out and points and thrusts his own hand forward, the king sees it shriveled. A judgment comes upon him. And he is shocked at what has happened. 
if we're being told something we don't want to hear, be it about our way of worshipping or how we live our life, do we take the word and change and think about what God wants us to hear and know and do? Or do we just let it lie? Do we turn away from it? Do we declare, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? As was said of Thomas Beckett. And is there an awakening when we've done that thing? The king would seem to notice something when, we, when he uttered those words. When he reached out and saw his hand changed. He knew where the power lay. It wasn't in the golden calf. It wasn't in the false altar which had broken apart and ashes lay scattered. The power lay with the Lord. And he says to the prophet, heal me. And he is prayed for and healing comes. But that's not the end of it. Even when the hand is healed, the crookedness remains. The king doesn't change his ways. He might walk off and not be bothered about the prophet being arrested anymore. But the story continues through his kingship of how he is a crooked king. And the story continues through his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. And they fail to worship the Lord. Knowing the power of God, knowing that he could be changed and healed, and that he was restored in that hand, does not turn the king around. Knowing the power of God is not enough. It does not make someone a follower. It has to be a decision to follow. Simply knowing is not enough. Fear and foolishness led the king astray and led the people from what was right. If you read the newspapers, you will see where there is fear. And you will also find foolishness often in the response. A foolishness and a straying from God's way. We have a faith that tells us of God's sacrificial love. We have a faith that tells us of how Jesus died. And through that, we can be forgiven and receive new life. 
Okay? Sometimes fear and foolishness can stop us doing the right thing. It leads us to the ways of the world, to worship of idols and a lack of love for others. Don't simply know of God's power. Don't be a crooked man or a crooked woman. But think of God's ways. Think of his sacrificial love. Praise his holy name and follow him as you are called to follow.